This episode of Full Stack Radio is brought to you by Hired. If you're a developer, designer, or product manager who's looking for a new opportunity, head over to Hired's website and create a profile to start receiving offers from companies who need what you do. If you accept a job through Hired, you'll receive a $2,000 signing bonus, and if you sign up through Hired.com slash Full Stack Radio, they'll double that signing bonus to 4000 bucks. So thanks again to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast, where I talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm Adam Wyland, as always, and today I'm here with Constantine, also known as uh, Everzad on Twitter and elsewhere on the web, to talk a bit about testing and TDD. How's it going, Constantine? Oh, it's going great, Adam. Nice to be cool. here. Yeah, it should be fun. So uh, we met originally um, in Amsterdam at Laracon last year, where you gave uh, a talk about testing that got a lot of people talking and was really interesting. And I had a lot of questions for you at the conference, but there wasn't tons of time to, to get into all this stuff. So I thought it'd be cool to have you on the podcast and we could kind of get into a bit more of our discussion about some of these questions that I have as I'm trying to get better at TDD. And uh, maybe you can help clear some of that stuff up and hopefully people listening can get a lot out of it too. Sounds fun. Awesome. So uh, one conversation that's been popping up a little bit on Twitter lately that I thought would be interesting to start with would be the differences or if there are any differences between what people call like classicist and mockist TDD or the London School of TDD and the Chicago School of TDD. What does all that stuff mean to you? Do you mind kind of going into a bit of what the history is there and what all that stuff means? Right. Uh, here we go, I guess. Um, <laughs> so the the first and like... I guess the easiest way to introduce it is uh, for people that are new to TDD scene, uh, there is two kind of uh, different branches of TDD or two different schools as they're called. Uh, the London and the Boston or the classical school of TDD. Uh, one was essentially created by, initially by Kent Back and described in his uh, Test Driven Development by Example book. And another one was, as you might guess, created in London uh, by XP Tuesday's meetup group here in London uh, and was basically described later on in 2010 in the very famous and very great book uh, about test-driven design, growing object-oriented software guided by tests. Um, essentially, the, th the first thing you need to understand about those both is like they are n in no way in conflict with each other. Uh, the growing object-oriented software version of uh, test-driven development or like mockist version of test-driven development or London school is essentially an ev evolution of uh, original test-driven design ideas, test-driven development ideas by Kent Beck, where people try to find ways to mitigate some of the limitations of original test-driven development. Um, foremost, the fact that with TDD, you sometimes need to expose uh, internals and sometimes break encapsulations of the object just for the sake of tests. Mm -hmm. um, there is a known problem, not problem, but challenge with TDD, with a classical TDD, where essentially if, you're, if the only way you can observe the system is through um, getters and external behavior of the system, the problem that you're facing is sometimes you will need to add getters just for the sake of testing. Yeah. And that essentially breaks encapsulation. Um, so basically, that problem was a starting point for, um, for the London School. Uh, 
group of people that worked back in the days, like somewhere in between 1990, 99 and uh, 2000s, group of people worked in the company called Connextra. Um, and they started looking and experimenting with TDD and started to kind of trying to find a way of, to avoid this encapsulation brackage in TDD. Uh, they felt that it's kind of wrong that they felt that TDD is a, is a really great practice, but it felt wrong to them that sometimes they needed to add those getters uh, in places where design didn't needed them. It's just like for the testing purposes they needed them. So they started to experiment with this kind of new approach for test driven development, which basically prioritized no getters of like prioritized design where there, there was less getters and prioritized design where there was more methods that didn't do didn't had any side effects or didn't return things even. So uh, less of a getters and less of a methods that actually return anything but null or void in, in case mm -hmm. of Java. So more of the kind of like what people call the tell don't ask yes, style of object exactly. programming. That's essentially where tell don't ask spawned from. Um, and mocks as one of the like central pillars of London School, was basically um, created just of, out of necessity of following this practice, right? So it's like whenever you when you don't add getters, and when all you have in the system is uh, a graph of objects that just tell each other what to do, you need some way of verifying that they indeed do tell each each other what to do, right? You yeah. do you do need in you do need to verify that there is this communication that happens. And that's what mocks were created for. It's just like it's a way to verify that um, messaging that is supposed to happen was indeed happening between objects um, under the microscope. And the most important bit here is the it kind of expanded over the classical TDD, but in no way it did kind of scratched on any ideas. In no way did it like removed or cancelled any ideas that original TDD by Kent Beck introduced, right? So uh, the only kind of thing that you can argue about is like what to use mock mocks for, but essentially it's just, it's an evolution, not revolution. And a lot of, a lot of London school practitioners, me included, uh, use both approaches depending on what we're testing and what we're designing at the moment. I'm, I'm kind of getting to that point as well myself where I'm finding uh, when I was trying to do uh, the sort of London style thing as uh, someone who's very new to it and doesn't under didn't understand all the kind of nuances of when to use a mock versus when to test state versus when to check the return value or something, whatever. I've kind of found over time that uh, you're right. It's, it's a, just another tool on top of what we had before with with classicist TDD, where uh, with a you know the original TDD stuff, you were forced to verify uh, behavior by checking state through either a getter or maybe something that was already exposed somewhere, or, or even checking that uh, you know some output was produced in some distant part of the system, and and that got really tricky when you had some series of communications where the change in state that you would ultimately have to check was very distant from where you kind of, you know, like flicked the switch earlier in the system. And I've, I'm finding like how I'm deciding when to, you know, check state or check the output of something versus when to verify that something 
told something else to do something is really dependent on me making a decision about which of those two things do I feel like is more stable in this case? Like, which is the one that's least likely to change is the way that this object communicates with this one, a firm contract that I can rely on, or is the, the change in state that that eventually causes more guaranteed to stay the same, depending on how my design changes over time than this specific type of communication. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, well, I think what you're highlighting there is, and it's, it's kind of the same that uh, XP Tuesday's group found out uh, eventually out of like practicing with this approach for quite some time, is that one of the biggest benefits of exposing and uh, putting those communications or messaging patterns between objects under the microscope is that you start seeing patterns emerging and you start seeing explicitly some more of uh, mistakes and problems in design happening before it's too late, right? So it's like you start seeing problems before invested too much into going in the wrong direction. Mm. And that's huge benefit before because you essentially start seeing, oh, okay, there is too many things that this object talks with or there is too many things that this object says. Before you invested too too much into going in this direction of like making this object a god object, right? So there is a huge benefit in this practice just by making things explicit, highlighting all those mistakes that you are used to do and like they're hidden till the very, very late moment where it's already too 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 late and too hard to untangle uh, this kind of web of interconnected objects. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, when you're talking about uh, how, kind of back to how this London stuff is kind of an evolution of the original classicist or, you know, uh, Kent Beckstall stuff. I feel like there's still a lot of situations if you're using, uh, if you're really focusing on like a tell don't ask style design, no matter what, you're still going to have a lot of communications that are kind of input in, uh, then some result out no matter what, right? Yeah. You can't, you're not always going to have a, a system where every single piece of communication is just tell this to do something. And that tells this to do mm -hmm. something, no matter what, there's going to be situations where you get output from something. Right. So in situations like that, even if you know, you're trying to do the, what people call the, the London style of TDD, you're still going to check the output just like you would in a Kent Beck style TDD. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, that's why I'm saying it's just like, um, creating all those new patterns and all those new uh, ways of approaching TDD didn't necessarily like uh, cancelled or destroyed all the previous approaches and all the previous uh, ways of doing TDD is just like enriched them. Uh, so absolutely when like there are depending on what you're writing and which part of the system you are at right at the moment, uh, particular style of doing TDD lends itself better than the another one. So if you're writing some uh, particular algorithm, which is uh, complex on its own because of, of the inherent attributes of the algorithm, but not very, comp not very heavy on communications, uh, well, you might end up doing more classical TDD because, as you said, there is a natural uh, tendency of having very clear input and very clear output out of a set of operations versus when you have an an interconnected web of objects where the sole purpose of this web is just communicate with each other and transfer knowledge about some um, event down the chain. 
And in this case, like communication becomes more important. So it's like, it's not like black and white. And that's where people get this wrong. It's just like, oh, it's like, it's, I'm a Londonist or like I'm a classicist. And it's not like black and white. It's more like a gradation. And it's a gradation that you're moving across. It's a scale that you're moving across throughout uh, throughout development of, of one system, even like as one practitioner, it's just like you're going to one particular object and it's like, oh, okay. Um, it's more like an algorithmic based, so I would rather do canned backstyle uh, TDD, where I would just like send an input and expect some particular outputs. And then at some point, this algorithm might become a little bit more complicated, or you will need to add a little bit more responsibilities to it, and you will see that it's like it grows out of control, and you're like, oh, I better delegate this thing to some some other object, but I don't want to care about this object, so I would, I would introduce a role in form of interface, and I would introduce like mock just to kind of to ex uh, make this make this delegation explicit. Sure. So when we're talking about introducing another object and mocking it out in a situation where you were able to test it with like a Kent Beck style, like passing some input, check the output uh, sort of TDD, is, is it a true mock that we're using there if that thing that we were testing before actually didn't have any side effects? Because the way I understand a mock is a real mock is designed to say, um, expect that this should be called, right? And fail the test if this method wasn't called, where in this test that we're kind of, this imaginary test that we're talking about, I don't know if we really care about uh, something being triggered somewhere. We just more care about maybe stubbing a collaborator that removes some of this responsibility to simplify the object that we're testing. Well, you're right that there is a, I sometimes use mock and double, in, uh, words mock and double interchangeably, which is not yeah. helping. Uh, you're essentially right that Mock and stubs are inherently different things, and mock is when you care when you care that particular call will happen. You use mocks uh, when you don't care about the call happening, but you care that if this call did happen, that it will return that thing. In this case, uh, that's called stub. So it's like mock is more of you being interested in particular call. Stop is more of you're trying to predefine some side effects of the system while you're testing the system under test. You would use mocks when you care about delegation. You will use stops when you are trying to get some input from third-party system or, or third-party collaborator, or maybe your, your own collaborator or third, uh, other role in the system that you are talking with. Yeah. A common mistake that I've used to make in the past and that I've seen other people make is setting mock expectations on collaborators that really should just be stubbed. Yeah. So if um, you have something and I need this to return some canned response that I can trust when I'm you know, testing this other object that interacts with that object, I... I care that that method gets called on that collaborating object, sure, because I need what comes back from it. But I don't really care that it gets called in the sense that, you know, if that doesn't get called, I want to fail the test. If I still got the right output, it's kind of like the idea of uh, the difference between query messages and command messages, right? Um, have you ever seen, do you follow any of Sandy Metz's work at all? Yeah, sure. Did you see that uh, magic tricks of testing talk that she gave? Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting because she didn't really talk about any of this uh, classicist and mock as TDD stuff. Mm -hmm. She just kind of presented kind of a grid of like, uh, there's two types of messages. There's query messages, which are messages where we ask an object a question and expect it to give us an answer. And 
as much as possible, you should avoid those types of methods having any side effects, right? Yep. Uh, the reality is a lot of times you will have to have side effects or, or for, for whatever reason, but you should you should almost look at when that happens with like a skeptical eye and think, is, is there a way that I can make this just like more of a pure function, right? Where I ask it something, it gives me some output. I can ask it as many times as I want and I don't have to worry about it sending an email every single time or, or anything like that. And then there's command messages where the output doesn't really matter and you're more just trying to trigger some, some series of events that's going to cause some side effect somewhere else. And because the output doesn't really matter and you can't really make any assertions against that output because there is no output, the only way to verify that the behavior is correct is to say, fail the test if this doesn't call you know, this method on this collaborator. And it might call that method on the collaborator based on some conditional in the object that you're testing. And that's what you're actually trying to test, right? So, you know, if some condition is true, it should send this message to this collaborator. Otherwise, it should send this message to this collaborator. So you set up the object, you pass in, you know, your your mocks or your spies so you can check this sort of thing and, and you send it this message and you assert that based on the kind of setup that you created that it called the right method on, on the right collaborator. And I thought that was a, an interesting way to look at it that sort of removed a lot of this heavy, you know, terminology of, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? It was more simple. It was more yeah. like, that's a very good what, talk. That's a very yeah. good talk. Um, and I advise everyone to, to look into it. If you're just, uh, just getting into mocks and I guess getting confused, uh, together with growing object oriented software book, um, which might be a bit heavier. Uh, that's a good entry point, like that talk by Sandy Matz. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Like one of the most common mistakes that I see people doing when they're just getting into mocks is getting into test doubles, sorry, um, is that they start mixing mocks and, and, and stops together. And it's like rarely I see like people are actually like doing stubs alone and they just like uh, combine them together. The easiest way for me to describe it is you use mocks when there is a delegation happening, when you absolutely need to make sure that like one uh, object says uh, tells other object to do something without getting anything back. So it's like then when that's where you use mocks. In almost every other case, you use something else, um, stubs probably. And the easiest way that I find like describing this is like imagine you are you need to declare your taxes at the end of the year, right? So it's like, you know that you absolutely need to declare those taxes, right? And it's like, you need to send a mail somewhere with, uh, with all the information about your, about your earnings this year. And you fill them in and you're sending them. It's like, you need to absolutely make sure that this, you're like, you're sending this mail, right? You're like, you're putting it into the, in the outbound box and it's done, right? It's like, you, you don't know if like, uh, if people will return you something, probably if like, if people will return to you, in the next year, there there might be some problem with the tax organization, yeah. but usually it's just like the only thing you actually care about is like you're sending them. It's like and it's like if you haven't sent them, that's where the problem arises. That's kind of that's kind of like delegation. You're delegating this thing to somebody. You're like you're sending mock. Now another situation is if you're sending, for example, your kid to shop for the milk, right? And you're like you're giving him money and you're saying it's like okay, go to the counter counter and buy me some milk using this money, right? And like kid comes back with the milk and it's like, do you really care that like he went to the counter and paid or like that he, he, he went to particular shop and bought, bought some milk? Well, you don't really because he, he brought you milk, right? And that's, that's the thing that you care about. And that's where you would, you, you would use stop. It's just like, you don't necessarily care 
if uh, interactions between kid and the world happened in the way that you expect them to. The only thing that you care about is that at the end you got what you wanted to, aka milk, out of the shop. Yeah, that's a hard thing to um, teach people, I've found, when I'm trying to explain how this stuff works to people based on my own experiences. You know, in that exact example, you know, I don't care that they paid for the milk. Like, really, if they stole the milk, it doesn't really matter to me because the end result that I wanted was just that they came back with the milk. But uh, I have a hard time convincing people sometimes, people who are new, people who are trying to figure out, they're, you know, they're kind of thinking, well, it is important that they, they pay for the milk or it's important. Uh, it's not important, but that's never going to change. So why does it matter that my test is saying that that method should be called? You know what I mean? That sort of over-specification. And it's, it's hard to explain why that doesn't actually buy you anything extra. You know what I mean? Yeah. In the example that you gave with the sending off your taxes, I, I was thinking in my head the whole time that uh, tell me if this is right. Sort of the more classicist uh, way to test that same thing would almost be like when I do whatever this does that ends up sending off my taxes to make sure that I sent my taxes, I would go to the revenue office and open their file cabinet and find my taxes in that file cabinet. And that's how you would sort of check it before people introduce this idea of mock expectations. Is that kind of a, a correct analogy? If, if take it to extreme, yeah. But um, in, in the very in the most basic level, you would at least go to the tax revenue and you would ask, like, hey, did you receive my thing, right? Yeah. And um, that's where the problem lies because, like, you kind of send a mail and, you, like, you need to wait for a couple of days, right, for them to receive it before going there. Uh, and that kind of also shows the problems that you might uh, get into when you have asynchronous or, like, uh, slow interaction system mm-hmm. where you need to send some message to another side of the world Uh or to some queue with some delay, right? And, like, you need to wait until you can actually check that you sent, which, like, which stops being a problem as soon as you, like, you use delegation uh, in combination with mocks, because, like, the only thing you actually, you're saying the only thing that I care about in this moment of time is that do I actually tell this guy to do this? Yeah, and that outlines that idea you talked about before of adding getters just for the sake of testing, right? Like, the metaphor there. You know, adding this ability to go and ask the you know revenue center, did you receive my thing, is not something that you probably actually care about doing in your system for any other reason other than being able to verify that uh, you sent the taxes in the test. Yep. Um, so we kind of talked a little bit about you know that one particular problem that I've seen people have. Are there any other common uh, mistakes that you see people run into when they're trying to uh, get into testing using test doubles and stuff? Right. Um, well, the most common one is. Um Wrong judgment, I guess, because the thing that I see a lot is, okay, like step back a second, doubles for me and the well, the TDD for me is, is more of a practice of, it's a design practice, right? It's a practice that helps you to make changes into system easier rather than trying to prevent breakages every time you have changes, yeah. right? So that's that's the mistake that most people um, get in their heads when they're like just starting with TDD. It doesn't matter with canned back TDD or growing object-oriented software TDD. Uh, is that they're like people essentially like, oh, that's that's a way for me to prevent bugs whenever I change the system. Well, not really. It's it's a way for you to design the system in a way that whenever you do a change, the chances that there will be bugs are minimal. It's it's like it's almost that ridiculously optimistic approach to to to, to development developing stuff. 
And what I see a lot of people doing when they are just getting into test doubles is that they're like, they're getting into troubles and they interpret these troubles in the, in the very weird ways. So it's like uh, one of the biggest concerns that I see here from people doing t uh, TDD and like doing mocks for and doubles for quite some time is that whenever I do smallest change in my system, I need to update like hundreds of tests. Yeah. Right. And like that's that's the thing that I kind of don't bite nowadays. Like don't I like I don't get it because it's almost like there is there is underlying assumption there that people completely ignore. And it's well, every time I do a small change in the system, it takes me like a couple of days to update all my tests. <laughs> but then probably because it took you so long to update your tests, it also took you a couple of days to update your code base. So the problem is not that it takes you a couple of days to update tests. The problem is it takes you a couple of days to update your code base for every single small change. And then it, on top of that, it also takes you a couple of days to update your tests. Yeah, so it's kind of outlining that what should have been a, a small change in maybe business logic should be a small change in the code, but it's not, which maybe leads to pointing out a problem in your design. It's almost like, you know, um, I'm reading news from time to time and it's like like American prison system where you're like, you're in the court and it's like 300 years, right? And it's like, and 100 years on top. And it's like, no, 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 this 100 years on top, I just want like to sit my 300 years, I'm fine. It's like, no, <laughs> you're not fine. 300 years is still a lot. <laughs> and maybe the reason why you're getting 100 years on top is that it's just like you did something really, really wrong in the first place. But it's like, that's almost like this. It's just like people are so obsessed with this idea that like it takes me a, a lot of time to update every single test that I'm doing a small change. And they're like completely ignoring the fact that it also takes them a lot of time to update their code base, the actual code base, every time they do this small change. And it's because like the fact that their test suite is so intermingled and uh, focused on implementation in most cases, there are exceptions, but in most cases actually highlights that their actual code base is also intermingled and also requires a lot of attention every time they do smallest change. And that's where the problem lies. It's like test doubles essentially are very, very effective at highlighting this kind of situation that you like your your entire code base is is a web of interconnected objects yeah. that basically fall apart every time you do smallest change. And if you don't take this messaging as as a feedback. If you don't listen to it, it's like, oh, I need to change my code design. And instead, just focus on, oh, this testing sucks, right? It's just like, it takes me additional 100 years on top of my 300 years. That's where you're getting into trouble. And it's like, and from this point on, you have only two choices, aka you learn why this happens, and you learn that there is a, actually a problem in your code design, or you listen to somebody on on the web and you discover that TDD is dead. <laughs> yeah, I think like one of the appealing things about TDD for me when I was getting into it was this idea that by by writing my tests first and using that to sort of guide my design that somehow it would make it easier for me to end up with maintainable code in the sense that I wouldn't have to think as hard about the design. <laughs> and I th I think that's a common um incorrect mindset that people land in a lot like it's not just writing these tests in advance like writing these tests before you write the implementation and following you know this checklist of rules or whatever is going to land you with code and you can just 
turn your brain off. Yeah. Uh, you can test anything, you know what I mean? You can figure out a way to test it. So it's not that it's impossible to test unless it's, it's well designed, but you have to pay attention to, okay, well, I'm setting up seven test doubles here and this one, this mock is returning another mock. And I have all these complex expe- expectations where this method is getting called three times and it's returning uh, different results depending on the parameters. Like, yeah, that test is, is going to work. So you could still write that test and everything will work, but your design that's your test telling you to think about your design. Like you still have to think really hard. You still have to know about all these different things you can do with your design. You still have to know um, what options you have available to you and and how you can tweak your system. The tests aren't going to do that for you, you know? Yeah, I think you absolutely nailed it. It's it's the fact that... And that's that's one of the biggest struggles with uh, people trying to get into TDD is just like they believe that... (laughs) <laughs> ridiculously, one of two things. It's either one additional practice on top of everything they do, or it's one practice that replaces they need their need for thinking altogether. And it's like so it's and it's like both of those assumptions are wrong. It's like first of all, testing is not test driven development is not additional practice. It's like it's not additional time you need to spend thinking about design. Because what it essentially does, it takes a lot of design activity that you will usually do before you're writing code, and it transforms it into something else, right? So it's like it's it's splitting up your entire design activity where you were like sitting in your chair and thinking how the code should behave before starting to write it down. It separates it into like a bit of that still plus uh, a lot of thinking while you're writing tests. Yeah, it's almost like a framework for your design activity that you already would have had to do. Yeah. And, an, and another thing where people think that, like, oh, it's just like, I don't need to think about design. I can just, like, write tests and, like, design will come out. Well, that's not it. It's like test-driven development is when you use tests to reason about your design. If the classical design approach is you're thinking about your code, you're sitting, like, and, like looking into the corner of your room, imagining, like, the interactions with, between objects or maybe drawing them on the board... And then only, only when you think you're ready, you're going and writing like the actual implementation code, uh, like basically to transform it, whatever it is in your head into this thing. Test-driven development is almost doing exactly that, but instead of like looking into the corner of your room, you're actually writing a test that describes your thinking process. It's like it's, test-driven development is a way to reason about your implementation or about, not, about your code while you're writing tests in form of tests. When we talk about tester and development in this sense, you know, like really being about design and stuff, it it feels to me like it really raises the barrier to entry for someone who wants to get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can't just do it if you don't already have a good foundational understanding of object oriented design. You know what I mean? And, and it's not going to, it's not going to give that to you. Like it'll, it gives you another source of information that you can use to reason about your design, but it's not something that you can just do and expect that to teach you all this other stuff that is almost like a prerequisite to being able to do test-driven development well, which is why I think, coming back to what something you mentioned earlier, a lot of people put the focus on preventing regressions and stuff when you're doing refactoring, which uh, you know, I'm kind of in that place myself. Like, I I do use test-driven development to help me with my design stuff, but that's still something that 
I think everyone probably has so much left to learn with everything mm. in the world, right? And I think that's uh, everyone should recognize that. But I, I definitely feel like I'm learning more and more and more about design, and, and I never feel like ready to do TDD the way that uh, I hear other people who I assume are amazing at it to talk about it. So, how how would you recommend someone get into to testing? Like, do you think testing is not really an important part of TDD in the sense that do you think it's important for people to learn how to write tests for their code for the sake of regression, but thinking of that as a totally different thing than what TDD represents in general? Does that make sense? Well, I, I kind of do, like, with everything you said, I do agree to the certain extent, I and I do not agree to the certain extent at the same time, um, okay. kind of having a, a struggle here. But essentially, I do agree with you that just doing test-driven development is not enough. Like, you need to have a grasp on object-oriented design. You need to understand what design is all about. And, like, hint, hint, design is all about preparing for a change in your code base and making sure that your code base is changeable when you need it. Um, but there is a lot of things you need to know around TDD and beyond TDD in order to be very effective with TDD. And the sa- that said, at the same time, I most of the people that I know that are very good with TDD and are very good as a consequence with design learned design by big part through TDD. And I think it all go boils down to the to the mindset that you're having, right? I think you can absolutely start learning design by doing TDD if you have just the right mindset where Whenever you're struggling with TDD, whenever some, something doesn't work, you assume that there is a problem with you're missing some knowledge instead of you assuming that there is a problem with, like, with the practice or approach itself. And you start looking for the answers of like why in this particular case it doesn't work. And you start reading books and you, like, you find an answer for this particular problem. It's like, oh, in this case it doesn't work because of this design problem. Okay, let's move on. And then like... You will have a lot of struggle when you are trying to do TDD with like with without design knowledge, but if you are just in this mindset, you will learn exponentially more, and you will learn faster than anyone that learns just by theoretically lear- theoretically learn like reading books. At the same time, if you're going TDD again without design knowledge, and your mindset is, I'm just trying to get my job done, and I don't care. And I just like hope to get that particular benefit out of test-driven development. And as soon as you don't get this benefit, it's like, well, it doesn't work. Then you probably wouldn't learn anything. But again, uh, maybe reading the books wouldn't be that beneficial for you either in this case. Yeah. So do you think do you think test-driven development is the best tool for building a good regression test suite? Or do you think that's a different activity? Um, I think it is. But I don't think that building regression test suite is inherently the biggest benefits of TDD. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest benefit of TDD is that essentially you you end up building a system which to a certain extent doesn't need regression, right? Regression prevention mechanism. Because what happens is like if you're doing the proper TDD and your design is influenced by test-driven development, what ends up happening is that you build highly decoupled, 
highly cohesive system where whenever you change something, you can be with a high percentage of confidence sure that things are localized in that particular class or that particular module and things outside of this guy would not change. Which basically means that your confidence is high enough without even running tests. Now, running tests also gives you like a some tip on top of that. But the biggest benefit is, is the fact that you're like, you build the system in the way where it's like, it's really, really hard to break it rather than kind of living in this constant fear of like, oh, I need to have every single test running or I will break things up. So I, I, f- I found that for me, trying to get better at this stuff, I assume that this isn't a problem for people who are really great at it, but that's why I would like to ask you about it is uh, I feel like I'm often changing how my objects communicate, uh, which I feel like results in having to rework a bunch of tests or rework a bunch of uh, stuff outside of what I'm actually trying to change. You know what I mean? So when you're doing, um, when you're using a lot of uh, test doubles and you're testing the interactions between things, what do you do when those interactions need to change or you got that interaction wrong? Mm. Well, this is where TDD as a practice starts playing in, I guess. TDD as, as itself is just like, is a, is a methodology plus it's very predefined set of uh, practices that you absolutely need to follow, like red, green, refactor, right? And it's like, there is a procedure to it. And it's very predefined and very kind of prescriptive. And the reason why it's so prescriptive is to exactly like to, whenever you get into a situation as of one you're describing, you know how to get out of it. And like the classical answer is like, you stabilize the thing that you were just working on, right? You get your system into the green state. And as soon as you get your system to the green state, then, on, then and only then you are um, starting to make this refactoring, starting to make this change. So basically what's happening is, if you are finding out that like the messaging was a bit wrong in the middle of like you implementing new feature, you kind of need to force yourself to still finish this task, right, with the wrong messaging. And when you do this, when you get to the green, then you refactor things to, to the old messaging, to, to, the, to the new paradigm. Now, sometimes it wouldn't work. And in this case, what you like, you, you just need to make a balance call of aka this half an hour that you just spent going through this half of the system, can you just like reset it? And another approach is just like, think that you were just working on, delete it, do refactoring that you wanted to do, right? And then start again, the thing that you... The mistake that I see like a lot of people are, um, practitioners are doing is that they're trying to mix those two things together and it just doesn't work. When you are when you are in the red state and you're trying to refactor at the same time, uh, you're basically getting yourself into trouble, and the change takes much longer than you would like it to. Uh, the best approach is either to finish up the f- new feature, get to the green state with the wrong paradigm, or reset all the work you were done on the feature. Just remove it, delete it, change the paradigm, change the design, and then start working on the feature again but in the new design and see how to it so how how can you do how can you refactor the implementation using the old messaging to get to green though if if your tests are verifying 
the messaging that you've now decided is incorrect. Like maybe there was a step that was assumed there that we left out that you would update those tests first to to expect the new messaging. Right. So wait, so it's like you are updating like say I had some object A that was supposed to send uh, some message to object B with one parameter and then I realized, you know, a few days later, oh man, that actually needs to send two parameters. Mm-hmm. Um so now I need to update my tests because my tests are saying, you know, expect that object A called object B with this parameter. And now I'm realizing, well, actually B needs this extra information. So I need to change how that communicates. Or maybe object A sent a message to B, which calls C, but really now it should be A calls C, which calls B. Or, or you know, any combination of that sort of thing. It's a little bit abstract to talk yeah, about yeah, without yeah. a, a Yeah, but I, example, I see what but. you mean. You mean it's like, um, so you're, you're purely talking about refactoring. It's like you're not adding a new feature, but... Um, you're essentially you're starting to do some some refactoring. You see that there's some uh, misconception in the design, and you're starting to do the small change. And then in the middle of the small change, you find out that it's like, oh, there is another thing, another like uh, thing that spawns out of it, and there is another thing that spawns out of it. I mean, it, it could be a new feature. It could be, um, say someone or some object has a relationship to one object and then the client decides oh well now that needs to ha- be able to have a relationship to many of those objects and that changes how your system was set up before to only expect you know interaction between one on each side and now it can talk to a collection of things or or anything like that you know what i mean yeah so in this case like there's there's many ways you can approach this situation um the worst case scenario um if you are working in the system, like if till this moment you had very decoupled system, uh, the worst case scenario, the thing that I would like do rarely but will do, is I will start writing like a new subsystem next to the old one using like TDD. So basically, I wouldn't. I would keep like if your system is isolated, if all your modules and classes are decoupled to the certain extent, and you need to drastically change how one class or one module behaves. One of the approaches that you could take is you'd keep your old wrong uh, module alone, but you start like writing the new version of it alongside the old one. Yeah, right? to keep everything green sort of thing. Yes, yes. And as soon as you're done with the new one, you find a way how to integrate it with the old system instead of the old module, and you replace it, right? That's one of the approaches. Another approach, which is more straightforward and much easier and more preferable, is identify... Uh, this is where like you, you would write like um, task list or like list of things that you want to change. Identify all the changes that you want to do to the system and then figure out the smallest one you can do. And like basically create a small roadmap for a big refactoring, right? So it's like I say, it's like I want to change this, 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 and that. Map all of this, like maybe put them on the board and say, okay, what's the smallest thing I can do in the direction of like this big refactoring. This one, okay, let me do this small change. You do this small change and you end up with, with the green state, you're done. You do the second change as a next one, right? And it's like you're constantly in the small step. Essentially, you're trying to avoid big band refactoring. Now, if it's hard, then you do big band refactoring, refactoring. But the way it works is like, as I described previously, it's just like you write new subsystem alongside the old subsystem, which will work only if you if your entire application is is a combination of those small decoupled yeah. subsystems which take like a couple of hours to rewrite so it sounds like um there are ways and strategies to keep this sort of thing as controlled and manageable as possible but 
no matter what, at the end of the day, sometimes you're going to run into situations that are tricky and complicated. And that's just the reality of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One strategy that I've used, and I'd like to get your opinion on this is um, sometimes what I'll do is I'll kind of like walk up the abstraction tree a little bit until I get to the the lowest point that isn't going to need to change Mm -hmm. and write a more integrated test that kind of just tests everything that should happen underneath that in terms of that so that at least I have some test that isn't going to have to change while I refactor underneath of it. Does that make sense? It's kind of abstract again, but <laughs> no, 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 that totally makes sense. Like that's not, that's not the approach. It's basically like you're validating and then you are refactoring underneath the like high, high level validation cl- uh, test. That's, that's a valid approach. I use this approach a lot, but when you're, when I working with legacy uh, code, um, I would apply it to whenever I'm working with untested legacy system, that's exactly how I'd approach it. I, I'd find the, the lowest possible level, which is always too high for, for yeah, the legacy yeah, yeah. systems, yeah. the lowest possible level at which I can uh, effectively test thing in isolation. And I will write this test and it will be, um, it will be end-to-end integration or smoke test. And then underneath i will start refactoring or i will start writing new subsystem alongside the old one and then i will try to do a replace yeah that's a valid approach but i i'm i don't think i ever used it with my code base i tend to find a way through my own code or like the code that we are writing with good design practices without the need to go higher level i guess so in most cases yeah. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. It kind of reminds me of a, another point I'd like to talk to you about. Have, uh, are you familiar with Ian Cooper? Have you seen any of the testing stuff that he's talked about? He's a guy in like the .NET world, I think. Mm. He did a talk called um, TDD, Where Did It All Go Wrong or something. And uh, he made it, he brought up an interesting um, point that I think is a trap people fall into where if you're TDDing, uh, you know, some object, say, right? And you write your tests, uh, you implement it as much as you can until you get the test screen, which maybe you end up with a class that uh, is doing too many things or is too big, but you're just trying to get the test screen as fast as possible, right? Mm-hmm. This is kind of my understanding of the traditional Kent Beck red-green refactor cycle anyways. Um, and when you start refactoring that class and maybe extracting other objects and moving the responsibilities out into smaller things, uh, he mentioned that what he thinks is a mistake that a lot of people make is they start trying to test these things that they pulled out during the refactoring step when mm-hmm. really those things should be considered almost private implementation details to the thing that you just TDD'd. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, is that something that you see people doing often? Is that something that you agree with? Um, I would say so. I think I don't see it often in my work area and maybe like the, the, the nature of web PHP applications. I'm dealing with. I don't see often like systems growing out of like out of one class. Like the logic, the logic basically outgrows this guy um, in in linear fashion. Usually, what I'm seeing is just like is systems growing with like 50 classes, and it's like uh, you add things to all of those 50 guys like at the same time. There is like he's definitely right. Is like the you are not you're not trying to write behave like new five new objects if you're decoupling this one big class five new objects with their own behaviors at, at the same time with refactoring of the original one right and that's like you're not mixing 
refactoring of one thing was refactoring was like five other things or like was writing uh, five new other things. Approach that you would usually take is one of two. Either you are, the thing that he probably would go with is like he would keep the the original test as an end-to-end test, right? And keep this, keep those like new classes underneath this test and that, that will be absolutely fine. Uh, approach that I might take is um, kind of the same-ish. I would test drive all the new implementations by moving some of the responsibilities of the old one, basically duplicating test cases. Yeah. And then yeah. Um, basically when they are ready and when everything is green, I would start replacing parts of the behavior of the original object with like dependencies on the new objects. And would you write new tests for that that are then using stubs and... You know, mock expectations where necessary. Well, the usual the way it usually happens is that um, you almost don't need to. Like you are in- introducing delegation usually, or you are introducing stubs. But the way it happens is like you have if you have a big object with uh, ten responsibilities, let's say, right, or it's like test ten test cases al- alongside I- its behavior, and you start breaking it down. The thing that happens is like the amount of test cases goes down when you are. Uh, finally replacing all those responsibilities with like yeah. uh, separate objects. So it's like you are introducing like you will introduce stubs into tests, but the 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 biggest impact on your original test test case will be like the fact that like amount of test cases goes down. Yeah. I, I can think of a real world example where I played with this idea. Um, are you familiar with Conway's game of life? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah. so we tried to build an implementation of that using TDD as just an exercise once. And our original implementation was uh, basically, you know, a world class, right? This represents, you know, the world and has these cells that, you know, grow and change or whatever. And um, our initial, like, naive implementation writing these tests was basically taking these rules, you know, that are outlined in Conway's Game of Life. And I'll, I'll link to this stuff in the show notes if people want to check it out. And writing test cases for these rules where, you know, if a cell is surrounded by four other cells and it's dead, it should come back to life in the next generation of the world and all this stuff. So it was very, very high level tests of all these different situations. And then we implemented the world using just like primitive arrays and stuff, right? And it was just one class. And then we started extracting like a cell object. And then there was like a living cell and a dead cell and and all this other stuff that started getting uh, extracted out. And that original test that we had was enough to tell us if any of that stuff ever broke because uh, the behavior was still the same regardless. But if something broke in the cell class, we didn't get good information about that when when the tests failed. So I don't know what the best strategy there is. Like, it sounds like what you're saying you would be a reasonable strategy is to keep that original test that kind of makes sure everything is working as it was before. And then uh, TDD, like the cell class on its own with the behaviors that it's supposed to have. Um, the thing that I find hard there is when is when you're still kind of like trying to figure out what your design is going to be and it hasn't stabilized yet and you're still playing around with it. Is it a better strategy to just use that original test while you're doing that or to still TDD out all these subcomponents that are still kind of in flux as you're still kind of decide how to break this thing down. Yeah. Um, I think the key there to understand that it's like with, with the good design, it's like, it's, it's almost never stable, I guess. Like it, it will never stabilize, stabilize, right? It's like, you will never be in the position where I'm like 100% happy. Like, it's a golden design. It's like, it's the best design I could come up with, right? 
yeah, there it makes will, sense, right? Because the whole point of design is to make it easy to change. Exactly. Gonna change. That's what design is. And essentially what it means is like, no, you kind of, you always need to do the right thing. You're just like, if you are putting yourself in the situation where like, I'm not ready to do the right thing, right? It's like, the point is you will never be, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's, um, don't, don't wait. Um, do the right thing from the get-go and it's like, find a ways how to approach it. I think the biggest paradigm shift and like the easiest way to get wrong with TDD is that the challenge is doing small things, right? The challenge is not to come up with like with the big, very impressive, very clear system. The challenge is to come up with like with a lot of small things, small changes that go like drive you towards a direction where like you have a very decoupled system where like changing one thing doesn't force you to change another thing. And that's quite a journey. And throughout this journey, you will do a lot of mistakes, but those mistakes don't grant you um, get out of jail card where like you can just like, screw it. I'm not doing TDD for like for, for the most of the time. And then when I have the cor- correct implementation of the system, then I will do TDD. Well, and you know what? That's like, then it will be too late. <laughs> yeah, it's not TDD anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. And you will not get there. Uh, it's, there is nothing wrong uh, there is another extreme to it. It's like there is nothing wrong into trying things out, just like experimenting or prototyping small parts of the thing. But um, you just keep in mind that prototyping and experimenting, uh, the only outcome of this is not the working system. It's pure learning. So I might sometimes when I'm writing a system, create a set of objects, like small ones that will do something just to check if they can. And I will learn that they can or I will learn that they can't and I will delete them Im- immediately afterwards because that, that already gave me a lot of ideas of how I can improve like the original implementation. And the sole purpose of like writing those three guys without tests was to learn if I can. That's absolutely fine. Like There is nothing wrong in this. The wrong part starts when you take those three guys after they're done and after they work and you say, that's part of my system. That's wrong. Yeah. Very cool. Well, we've been going for about an hour now, so maybe it's a good time to start winding down. Is there uh, anything else that you want to talk about before we go? Uh, no. I think that that was a good conversation altogether. There is nothing, well, except just going through through resources again. I think that was the right point from you. Like, um, If you do want to get into TDD, uh, and if you do want to get into like, TDD with test doubles, the best resource is still growing object-oriented software guided by Testbook uh, by Nat Price and Steve Freeman uh, from 2010. It's it's really great book. I would advise reading this book as Adam suggested with Sandy Matt's videos. They give a lot of context and like very a lot of simplification in the good way to the concepts described in the book. I think Reading through this book will give you a lot more context of what test doubles are and will clarify some of the misunderstandings of them. And hopefully we did help <laughs> to a certain extent in the last hour too. But yeah, that's like those are best resources, I guess. Yeah, I just picked up a Growing Object Oriented Software Guided by Tests uh, last week, actually. I've read little bits and pieces um, online before and through friends copies and stuff but i picked up the actual thing and i'm starting to work through it now and it's been a really good read so far so i'm looking forward to finishing it yeah. it's a bit tricky because it's like the examples are java and uh they don't use the easiest to read uh mocking framework steve freeman and that price wrote uh jmock 
which is a, which is a mocking framework they use in the book, which uh, has a lot of very interesting, very great ideas around how they how they use it. But sometimes it might get confusing because like it's nothing like you've seen before. Uh, but it's worth getting through. Awesome. So, uh, what's the best way for people to to keep up with uh, you know what you're interested in, what you're doing? Uh, do you have a blog? You know, Twitter stuff like that. Uh, yeah, I have a Twitter at Everzet uh, with T at the end. That's I guess is the best way to keep up. Um, if you are in London in the middle of April, which is uh, April fifteenth. Uh, we have BDD first ever BDD meetup in London, uh, where Matt Wynn and Aslak Halashoi will will talk about how agile, how BDD can save agile. So please uh, go to the meetup.com and register for this meetup. Should be a really amazing fit. In addition, like if you need any support, I guess um, you can always find me on Twitter or on. Uh, at the company I'm working in, in vika.com, you can ask for help. And if it's a small thing, I can obviously help you and unblock you through the social networks. If it's a bigger thing, we can help you to transform your company and whatnot. Very awesome, man. Well, this has been uh, really great. Thank you so much for giving me your time and coming on and answering these questions of mine. I learned a lot and I hope other people did too. Yeah, pleasure. It was a pleasure, Adam. Very cool. So uh, show notes for this episode are going to be found at fullstackradio.com slash episodes slash 15. If you can rate and review on iTunes, that's always helpful. And if you have uh, any thoughts on the episode, there's uh, comments on the website or start a conversation on Twitter. Uh, There's a Full Stack Radio account on Twitter. I'm always on Twitter. So any ideas for guests or topics or anything, reach out to me as well. Uh, So yeah, hopefully that was cool. See you guys next time. Thanks.